Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Well, hey, welcome, welcome, welcome. Boy, it's Wednesday already. These weeks go really fast, don't they? My name is Charlotte, and I'm going to be your host tonight. Welcome to California Haunts Radio. I am the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. You can find the team at www.californiahaunts.org. But this is a, this is something different. This is a California Haunts radio show, and uh, it's something I enjoy doing. I'm a journalist, photojournalist by trade, and so this gives me the opportunity to do a little journalism on the side. Now, some of it's ghostly, some of it's not. Tonight, we're ghostly. Anyway, um, my team is uh, 35 strong up and down the state of California. We also have branches in Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and Hawaii. We have a great guest for you tonight. Sylvia Schultz is an author, and, she, and she's also a ghost hunter. So she does write about uh, the, ver- the various hauntings in her area, Illinois, in the state of Illinois. But she also writes nonfiction books as well. So, uh, and fiction books. I'm going to keep my, keep it together. So, uh, it's going to be great to have her on. I got a couple announcements to make. Um, if you like these videos and you've been watching them and you haven't subscribed to our video, our YouTube channel yet, please do, especially if you're watching from YouTube, you'll look down at the right hand corner and you'll see a little ghost that has a Sherlock Holmes hat on it and a magnifying glass. And if you click on that, you'll become a subscriber. We have over 170 videos there that we've done at this show. And a couple others from, from some different things we've done, investigations. And uh, that'll get you in. And so every time we do a show, it'll pop right up on on a notice for you guys as a subscriber. I want to thank you all for coming tonight. And, uh, wow, it's been a heck of a week. Like I said, we're already up to Wednesday. We're getting there. You know, it's uh, 2022, 2022, you know. So uh, anyway, without further ado, I'm going to bring Sylvia in and we'll chat with her. Oh, yeah, and I readjusted my backdrop, so I don't know where I'm going to end up <laughs> when Sylvia does come in. Hopefully, I'm in a good spot tonight. Hopefully, I got it adjusted right. We'll find out, won't I? At least I don't look like a dwarf. Usually, I look like a dwarf in behind everything, so we'll see. So, here we go. Okay. Hello. And it did it to me again. Yes, hello, Sylvia. How are you doing? Hi, Charlotte. I'm doing absolutely wonderful. How are you? I'm really good today. Really good. I'm kind of hidden, but I'm good. I was hoping I wasn't tonight, but it did it to me again. So I've got to make adjustments with my computer and figure out what the heck's going on. That's fine. Yeah. Every time I use this backdrop, it takes like a week or two to adjust to get to where I need to be because I had a Christmas backdrop. So it's cool. I like it. I'm digging it. Thank you. So tell me about you. Okay, well, I have been a paranormal investigator for about 10 years or so. What? Not as soon as 2022. So, yeah, about 12 years. And uh, I have been very, very lucky to be able to write books about some of my experiences and books about other subjects, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, extremely fortunate to live next to one of one of the most haunted places in Illinois. It's called the Peoria State Hospital. Yes. Ten-minute motorcycle ride away from this place's front door. It's amazing. 
Well, um, what's it like to live that, I mean, that close? Did you get anything uh, residual in your house from that? Because you'd think there'd be stuff that would come over, you know. <laughs> I, you would think so, but I am not very sensitive at all. The more I do this, the more sensitive I get. Right. I can walk into an area and kind of feel if it's got any activity or not. And when it's just dead too. But yeah, I said, <laughs> good play. I am not very sensitive, but just as a rule. I mean, somebody could be walking around behind me carrying their own severed head, and I wouldn't notice it. There you go. There you it's go. Possible that 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 folks from the asylum have followed me home, but uh, for the most part, the the spirits there at the Peoria State Hospital are very gentle and wonderful. They just were people that had difficulties in life, and that's that's about it. And some of those spirits have become good friends. <laughs> awesome. Well, like you say, though, I mean, that's true, and people don't realize that is we're all born sensitive. You know, at some point in life, we lose, we, we, because we get so busy, we, we kind of bury it. But the, the more we get into paranormal investigating and the more we go out, the more you realize that that, that starts to come out more. It starts coming back, yeah. And I am very grateful for it because, yeah, you can walk into a place and and tell whether there's energy there or not. I'm becoming more mm -hmm. sensitive to that. I was at the Velisca Axe Murder House, and the the energy there was just astounding. Um, I was I was in the house for about 45 minutes by myself at the very beginning of the investigation. Oh boy, yeah. I had the place to myself. It was amazing, and. Um, I was just walking around the house and just scoping the place out. And I realized it, it, it felt almost serene. I mean, this is a place where eight people were brutally murdered, but mm -hmm. it felt serene because it was, you could tell it was a place that, that four children were being raised. And it was a, it's a small house. It's a very small venue, but mm -hmm. uh, you could tell that it was a place where, a family was living and this, this house was just filled with love. But then I, I stayed overnight. And uh, the next morning I also was in the house by myself after everyone else had gone. And there were a couple more photos that I wanted to take. So I went back into the house by myself and I was charged locking it up and giving the keys back. And when I, when I went in there in the morning, the energy was very, very different to what it had been the night before because the victims were discovered in the morning, in the early oh, morning. Okay. And I think the house remembers that because the energy in the morning was just my teeth were on edge and mm -hmm. I was I was almost jumping out of my skin just being there. And I talked to the caretaker the next time I went and I told him about that experience and he said, absolutely, the energy of this place can change within 15 minutes. So, wow. Amazing stuff. That is amazing stuff. Tell me about the hospital. Now, I mean, it's obvious. I mean, people would think that it's obvious that there's going to be a lot of activity there because it was a state hospital. Yes. But what kind of stuff went on in there? Oh, boy. I love talking about the Peoria State Hospital. It's one of my favorite places. I mean, next to like Gettysburg and stuff. But uh, you, go. you say haunted mental asylum. Right. And you're Automatically goes over that. Oh, the wrong button again. Blast it. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> there we go. 
hey, I recognize that book. So yeah, you see Haunted Mental Asylum and your mind goes American Horror Story on you and you assume that there was pain and fear and abuse. And my joy and my privilege to tell people that was not the case at the Peoria State Hospital. This was a case where people were treated like family. The, The superintendent of the place for the first several years of the of the asylums working dr george zeller was very very concerned with the treatment of the mentally ill he was not trained as a psychiatrist he was trained as a surgeon he was a doctor but he was a surgeon he had no psychiatric training at all and he was very proud of that fact because he realized that he was not bringing some hidebound ideas of how to treat the mentally ill. He -hmm. could from scratch and treat them the way he felt they should be treated. So in order to facilitate that, he took the bars off of the windows. He made sure that all of the wards, except for the two violent wards for the men and for the women, were left unlocked. The people were, were not, there were four hospitals on the hilltop, but they were for the care of the physical ailments of the patients. The patients lived in cottages, not in the hospitals. Nice. These cottages, the windows, he made sure that his nurses left the windows open a couple of inches so that people could see they were not locked in. The, The asylum started in 1902, and this is the beginning of the 20th century. So he said, these people don't lock their doors at home. Why would we lock them in when they've come to us for help? Mm -hmm. So he was, he felt very strongly about principles of non-restraint. He forbade the use of straitjackets and handcuffs and foot cuffs and things like that. He, a lot of the patients arrived at the Peoria State Hospital wearing straitjackets and handcuffs. And he immediately had them taken off, but he kept them. And he kept them in a room next to his office. And the only reason he kept any of those items was for his staff to be able to point to and say, never again, not here, not at this asylum. That is cool because a lot of those asylums of that time period, I mean, there's some horror stories like, you know, know, where they would put like the TB patients, even they put people outside in the freezing weather because they thought that would take care of the TB and stuff like that. Right. Right. Yeah. The Peoria state hospital was an absolute gem in the healthcare field. And I am so intensely proud to be associated. Yeah, I would say that too. Yeah, absolutely. So why do you think it's so active? Well, because that's an interesting question. And I think it is so active because the people got such incredibly good care there. Dr. Zeller wrote many, many times of people coming to him and his nurses for help. And he said he wrote many times about that fine old word, asylum, which means a place where you can find refuge, where you can safety. And this, this is a place for people who the the wide world out there was just too much for them. Sure. And the Peoria State Hospital in order to find peace and rest. And that's where they found it. It was just an amazing place. 
So there wasn't any of that stuff going on, like shock treatments or anything like that going on at all. Uh, there were shock treatments given, but very later on in the asylum's history. Dr. Okay. Zell was superintendent of, he retired in 1936 and he uh, passed in 1938. So he was in charge for quite a long time. And it was his rules of taking care of patients that, that were, were followed for a very, very long time. And you say, you say electroshock treatments. Mm -hmm. and again, we think of all these horror stories. Right, right, right. Um, the electric shock, shock treatments that were given, first of all, modern research has discovered that ECT, electric shock therapy, actually does work. Electric convulsive therapy actually does. It calms, it, it, it shocks that rhythm of the brain, but it calms some, in most people, it calms that down. Some people, it cures them. Some people, it doesn't help at all. Sure. The people, it calms them down. Now, we, we think of the whole, the snake pit thing. Right, right, right. People and electrodes strapped onto their heads and they just get jolted. But at the Peoria State Hospital, they, they did that sort of treatment, but they, they, they put the, the patient under first. Okay anesthetized them first, then administered the shock treatment, and then brought them out of the anesthesia. Okay. So you didn't have the broken bones, you didn't have the convulsions that you had at other institutions. Very interesting. You know, it's funny because I have congestive heart failure. And you know, when I think of electroshock treatment, they did that to me. There you go. Anesthesia because they, because they, 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 they shock the parts of your heart that are bad. And yeah. you know, yeah, they, they either they, they they either dull them or they put them into a, a different rhythm, and that's what they did to me. And well, so when I think of electroshock treatment, I think, well, it's still being used today in a lot of ways, but they but they're using it in different types of ways. Precisely, yes, we have been able to fine tune medicine to mm -hmm. serve the patients. Yeah, yeah. So what types of uh, activity go goes on in this place? Because I mean, from what I understand, it's very active. Oh my goodness, yes. If you ever visit the Peoria State Hospital as an investigator, and I dearly hope you do, I, I volunteer to be your native guide. I know it's a lot in California, but if you visit it as a paranormal investigator, you will experience this haunting through every single one of your senses. And I do mean every one of your senses. People have seen shadow figures, they've seen apparitions. I myself have seen an apparition. Mm -hmm. There, pe people hear things. I have heard whispering in a room where I have been one of three people in the room, and we have looked around at each other, and everyone's mouths are closed, and we still hear whispering. People have heard singing in the hallways. They've heard they've heard sighs and moans. I heard a moan the first time I went to the the asylum. My very first visit there ever. Um, they, people have been touched. I have been touched. People have been pushed. <laughs> and yeah, they, 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 some of the spirits get very physical. Um, the sense of smell comes into play. I have experienced that myself. <laughs> I keep coming back to what I've experienced, is, but, but I've been uh, playing at that place for uh, about 10 years or so. Right. 
so yeah, I keep referencing my own experiences, but all these experiences are collected in the books, Fractured Spirits and Fractured Souls. Um, the, uh, the sense of smell, I was, I was talking about that. Um, Dr. Zeller was very interested in alternative therapies. He was very interested in light therapy for different ailments. Mm-hmm. Color therapy, which again is still used today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was talking to an investigator who said that her group was in the men's ward of the tuberculosis hospital. They were doing an EVP session. And all of a sudden they started smelling something that was very out of place in an asylum that had been abandoned for 40 years. They started smelling, um, she said it smelled like a Christmas tree, but a little bit of cinnamon. She said it smelled like Christmas. And I got to thinking about that after she told me that. I said, why on earth would they be smelling this in an institution? Well, I thought, I I like going back to the history of a place and knowing what a place was used for in order to figure out these haunting experiences. Mm -hmm. Now, this was the tuberculosis ward. And Dr. Zeller was very interested in different kinds of medicine, including herbal medicine. And Mm -hmm. in herbal and white pine is one of the best chest decongestants there is. So I have no doubt that the, what those were they, the investigators were smelling was some sort of chest liniment mm-hmm. that was used with the patients. The sense of taste comes into play. Again, at the Peoria State Hospital, uh, at the, the Pollock Hospital, the tuberculosis ward, um, tuberculosis causes lesions on the lungs. And when you cough, lesions rupture and you cough up blood, classic symptom of tuberculosis. And there have been investigators that ha- and visitors to the place that have tasted blood in their mouths. And sometimes it's so strong that you have to, we warn people, if you feel like you're going to barf, go outside, do it in the grass. <laughs> and, unfortunately, and yes, every single one of the senses, it's a wonderful place to investigate. It sounds like it, and, and one of my investigators is on here. She says, "Please, Charlotte, let's go." Okay, <laughs> off we go to Illinois. I'm good. I'm your native guide. <laughs> See, we've got a guide can take us through and everything. Yeah. Um, how big is this hospital? Okay, uh, so it's basically on a hilltop, which is, oh, I don't know the exact acreage, but it's everything is in within walking distance of each other. There were 63 buildings on the hilltop at the asylum's height. 12 of those buildings are left standing. And they are all easily within walking distance. Because, again, I said it was it was laid out in 1898 and started in 1902. This is before vehicles. Mm-hmm. So everything was right there. And it was its own little, almost its own little little village of sorts. There weren't any walls. The patients were allowed to wander wherever they wanted to. Um, that's another very interesting aspect of the haunting is that uh, the, the, the vibe of the whole hilltop is that um, if there is bad weather, you okay. activity on the hilltop because oh, wow. the, the patients were allowed 
Okay, okay, we're back. Um, the patients were allowed to wander wherever they wanted, but when it was a storm coming, the attendants and the nurses wanted to bring everyone back, so they would blow a siren. Okay. And if you hear us on the hilltop, the hair on the back of your neck goes up, and you just want to get inside. If you're not inside already, you want to get inside as soon as you can. And it's just this this residual vibe of oh boy, nasty weather's coming. I have to get under shelter. And this it's really really cool. That is cool. Have you guys been able to match you know match any of the the ghosts that you've run into with with names of people that were at the hospital, like doctors, nurses, or anything like that? We have, and it's so exciting. That's why I love the historical aspect too. Um, there are several spirits that we can uh, identify as being patients that were there. Um, in Fractured Souls, I write a lot about um, realizing which hauntings are attached to which patients. Okay. There was, so the place is so active that it's been visited by a lot of paranormal groups, including TAPS. Now, when they were, when TAPS, the TAPS team was there, they investigated the Bowen building, which unfortunately is no longer standing, but they also went to cemetery too. And they found the grave of a spirit that we call, the, of a patient that we call Bookbinder. And Bookbinder's story is one of the most famous ghost stories to come out of the Peoria State Hospital. Bookbinder was a patient in uh, from 1906 to 1911. He was, no one knew much about him except that he had worked at a bookbindery and he had had some sort of mental breakdown where his breakdown was so total and so complete that he was rendered mute. So he oh. was unable the intake nurses his name all anyone knew was that he worked at a book bindery so lacking any other information about him the intake nurse simply wrote down in the ledger a manual bookbinder. so he became known as bookbinder or old book now one of dr zeller's genius ideas was to give everyone a job every able-bodied patient had a job to do gave him a reason to get up in the morning gave him something to fill their days so old book was put on cemetery detail and he was tasked with digging the graves and keeping the cemeteries all nice and tidy. And he got into the habit of sticking around for every funeral and crying at each funeral. He became known for this. He became kind of an urban legend on the hilltop when he stayed there. And when people, when a patient knew that they themselves were approaching death, they would snag a passing nurse and they would say, hey, make sure old book cries for me or I won't get into heaven. So he was very well known and very well liked on the hilltop. So in 1911, old book himself passed away and his funeral was very well attended. He was very well liked. And um, they, when they went to bury him, when they went to lower the coffin down into the grave, the coffin, when they lifted it, it was, it felt like it was empty. Mm -hmm. And uh, as soon as that happened, as soon as that coffin was, was realized, it, it, they lifted it up and boy, this doesn't feel like it has a body in it. Uh, everyone heard a, a moaning coming from 
the tree that old book would lean against and cry in life. And they saw the apparition of old book standing there just wailing at his own funeral. And, uh, and people just lost their, lost their minds about this. And people fell to their knees and nurses fainted and, and Dr. Zeller was there. And he, he ordered someone to get a crowbar and, and open up the coffin so they could see what was going on. And as soon as did as soon as the lid lifted there was old book the ghost disappeared and there was old book in his coffin absolutely dead and dr zeller said it was awful but it was real i saw it 300 nurses and 200 spectators saw it and the the story of old book doesn't end there the tree that he used to weep at started to die and when they tried to chop it down, they heard the voice of old book coming from the tree yelling. So they didn't chop it down and they tried to burn it down. And they saw this figure of old book in the flames, so they couldn't burn it down. So it was allowed to fall on its own. And um, so that's the legend of old book. So that it was such a powerful ghost story yeah. that Dr. Zeller started getting uh, letters from the superintendents of other asylums going, okay, we've heard this really strange story coming out of your asylum. And um, he, he was actually, he actually had to write a blanket letter and send it to all these journals to which he was a contributor, including interestingly enough, the Journal for Psychical Research. Um, so he, he wrote this letter and he actually, Dr. Zeller was actually known as the Kipling, the Rudyard Kipling of America. And the Rudyard Kipling of England wrote to him and complimented him on his short stories. <laughs> so he, he would write fiction stories. And he wrote this letter to all these journals. And he said, you know, there are lots of wonderful folks in our asylum. Some of them make it into my fiction. <laughs> and yes, I wrote this story about Bookbinder. Was there a patient there named Old Book? Yes, there was. Did he cry at every funeral? Yes, he did. Was he put on cemetery detail? Yes, he was. And Dr. Zeller thought it was so touching that old book cried at every funeral, even for people that he didn't know, that he, th he thought it was a real shame that no one would cry for old book at his funeral. So he made old book cry at his own funeral. <laughs> so the ghost story is completely out of Dr. Zeller's imagination. But when the TAPS team went to Cemetery 2, where Bookbinder is buried, they caught a shadow figure at the tree line. Very distinct. Really wonderful capture. So, of course, they assumed it was Old Book. But I've just told you that the ghost story of Old Book is right. completely So who was it that they found? Well, a little before Old Book actually passed away, we had a patient come to us from Hannah City, who, which is about, oh, about half an hour away from Bartonville. And this gentleman was in his 70s. His name is Charles Jones. And he admitted himself to the asylum. He was having difficulty with depression. And he made himself very genial to the nurses. He was, he was a gentle guy. He just was fighting depression. Um, so he was with us for about three weeks or so. And what was on the hilltop before the asylum was um, a couple of coal mines. And when the miners moved out, they left a lot of their equipment behind, including 
blasting caps. So Mr. Jones was doing some exploring because the patients were allowed to go anywhere they wanted to. Uh And he discovered one of these storehouses and he discovered one of the blasting caps and put it in his pocket for safekeeping. And after a few weeks with us, he decided that his demons of depression were just too much for him to fight. And he went into one of the ravines that crisscrossed the entire hilltop. Right. He put the blasting cap into his mouth and either oh. bit on it or punched himself in the wow. chin. Decapitated him as neatly as a guillotine would have done. They never, it, it, it obliterated his head. Oh my gosh, what a way to go. Part of his head. Um, so it is our theory, the historians and I, <laughs> it is our theory that it is the spirit of Charles Jones that the TAPS team captured there walking along the wood line. What a way to go. I can't imagine. Well, I guess if your mind's that despondent, you know, to, to do that. Woo. This is quick. <laughs> yeah, there's another. I'm, I'm going to uh, move my camera here just a bit. I have a copy of Fractured Souls propping up, <laughs> propping up my camera here. There's another. <laughs> There's an, I, I just want to get the dates and the names right. Um, sure. Okay, uh, yes. There is a spirit in the Pollock Hospital in the tuberculosis ward uh, that we call Heavy Boots. He likes to run up on people unexpectedly. He likes to make a lot of noise while he's doing it. He likes to thunder up to people in the hallway and just scare the paste out of them. That's one of the very few spirits that we have that really likes getting a rise out of scaring people. We think he gets a kick of energy out of it because nobody peed their pants when they were sad. (laughs) You pee your pants when you're terrified. And that's what spirit likes to do. So we were thinking about it. We're like, what in the world would have led to this haunting because it is such a distinct haunting. It is, he's got such a, Heavy Boots has such a distinct MO. So we're like, what caused this? Well, the Peoria State Hospital was a working hospital. It was open 24 7, 365. So you had people that worked the night shift and people that were active on the night shift. So what happened? In October 12th of sometime in the 1950s, um, there were two patients at the Peoria, at the, the Pollock Hospital, at the tuberculosis ward. They were both patients at the hospital who developed TB symptoms. So they were put, they were moved from their cottages to the tuberculosis ward. Their names were James Spar and Jesse Bonham. And they were both young men, both uh, full of, this and vinegar. <laughs> um, Jesse was 25 and James was 33. So one night, James came barreling up behind Jesse, and for whatever reason, something in his own mind, he thwacked James or thwacked Jesse right across the back with a broom handle. And Jesse was understandably annoyed by this completely unprovoked attack. So he picked up a floor polisher and beat the crap out of James with it. James died at the scene. He beat him to death with a floor polisher. So, (laughs) again, it is our theory that 
you know, James died with all these unresolved issues, obviously because he attacked somebody without provocation and then got it. We think that he just has a lot of anger still and he likes scaring people. So that is who we figure that's that's who we think is heavy boots. We we think is is James Spar. Wow. <laughs> theory, but it is so great to be able to put historical events to hauntings. Right, right, right. Yeah, well, I don't know how much I want to turn off with the plastic cap. <laughs> yeah. I just yeah. I can't yeah. wrap my head around that one. Wow. Yeah. I don't I don't know how much time we have left. Oh, we got over a half hour left. We're good. Nice. Okay, super. If you are willing, I will share with you one of the most incredible stories about the Peoria State Hospital. Absolutely. Okay, fantastic. Okay, so the story of Rhoda Derry is one of the great tragedies of mental health care in Illinois, and it is one of the great success stories of the Peoria State Hospital. Okay. Rosie was born in 1834. She was the youngest of nine children. She grew up on a farm down in southern Illinois around Quincy in Adams County. And in when she was uh, 16 years old, she did the most natural thing in the world. She fell in love. Mm. She fell in love with the son of a neighboring farm family, Charles Phoenix. And everyone was pretty happy with this relationship, except for one person, Charles's mother, Nancy Phoenix. Now, I mentioned that Rhoda was the youngest of nine children, and the dairies were dirt poor. They did not even have land to call their own. All the census records show Jacob Derry, Rhoda's father, working other people's land for them. So they didn't even have land. But the Phoenixes were rather well off. They lived in a town, the neighboring town. And Charles was the oldest son of only four children. So he stood to inherit his father Frederick's land when Frederick passed on. So Nancy Phoenix was not about to have her baby boy Charles marry one of these dirt poor dairies. Uh She confronted Rhoda in the street one day. And she said, if you do not release my son from this engagement, I will curse you. We don't know how far Rhoda's relationship with Charles went, but we do know that at one point they were engaged to be married. So Nancy threatened to curse Rhoda. Now, talking about witchcraft in front of Rhoda Derry would have been a really good way to get her attention because her grandmother, Mal Derry, was known as the fortune teller of the revolution. Maldary actually emigrated from Germany with her husband, Valentine. Her husband was conscripted by the British army to fight in the Revolutionary War. And Mal, not to be left behind, disguised herself as a man and came with Valentine. When they got here, they switched sides and fought for the Americans. And after the Revolutionary War, they settled in Pennsylvania and Mal practitioner of Pennsylvania Dutch hex magic. So she was known for counties around as being able to lift and cast curses. So talking about witchcraft in front of Rhoda Derry, Maul's granddaughter, was a great way to get her attention. Uh-huh. Several weeks after this confrontation with Nancy Phoenix, Rhoda had some sort of break with consensual reality. 
she started having fits. She would swear that invisible witches were swooping down to attack her. Um, these are small towns. Word travels fast. Um, Nancy realized that Rhoda was having these mental issues. And she actually tried to get into the dairy cabin to see Rhoda and apologize. She wanted to say, you're okay. It, it's, I was kidding. There's, there is no curse. You're fine. Snap out of it. And Rhoda refused to see her. And I don't blame her a bit. So uh, the, the phoenixes just sort of drop out of the historical record. Nobody ever, nobody has ever figured out what happened to them. Um, Rhoda was committed to the state hospital at Jacksonville for two years. She was a very violent patient. She was locked in her room every night. And every morning, the attendants would find her wandering the grounds. And they would always say, who let you out? And her answer was always the same. Nancy Phoenix let me out. That's something, that's a, a random weirdness part of Rhoda's story that no one's been able to explain. I have my own theory, but I no one has been able to explain that. Rhoda was in Jacksonville for two years, mm -hmm. but uh, the state hospital at that time was a, a very limited place. Um, if you were not better in two years, you had to give up your place to a person who could be helped. So at least after two years as incurable. Her parents cared for her at home as long as they could, but in 1860, her mother died and her father could no longer care for her. So he made the decision to have Rhoda committed to the Adams County Almshouse. Now, almshouses in the middle of the 19th century had the potential to be really horrible places. If you had an empty barn in your backyard and $25 for a license, you could open up your own almshouse. Because at that point in history, they didn't think that the mentally ill could feel pain or cold or heat. Mm -hmm. So in some cases, they were treated no better than animals. But this was a county-run almshouse. It had board oversight. It was a fairly nice place. But in reality, a, an almshouse was just a place to go if you were down on your luck that you could go get three hots in a cot. They were not prepared to deal with the mentally ill, just the poor. But poor people have mental issues too. Sure. And the Adams County Almshouse was absolutely unprepared to deal with someone with Rhoda's depth of crazy. She would attack people. She would pick the buttons off of the blouses of people that she attacked and try to swallow them. She had a condition called pica, which is a compulsion to eat inappropriate objects. So she would crawl around on the floor and anything she found on the floor, a pin, a penny, a nail, it would go into her mouth. If they gave her, gave her a piece of chicken for her lunch, she would cram it into her mouth, bones and all. So for her own protection, the superintendent of the almshouse decided to put Rhoda into something called a Utica crib. Uh -huh. This was shoe equipment for mental asylums at the time. It's just like what it sounds. It's about the size of a baby's crib, but it sits on the floor and it has a barred top, which uh -huh. also locks. Patients were put in it for overnight. That's all it was designed for. Rhoda was left in hers for weeks and months. When she was let out, 
her hips had atrophied so much she couldn't stand. She had to be in this crib. She couldn't stretch out. Her knee, her knees were up to her chest. Her, her hips literally atrophied. When she was let out, she was cared for by other feeble-minded patients. Sometime in the te first 10 years of this treatment, Rhoda decided she no longer wanted to watch the world go by through the bars of a cage, and she clawed her own eyes out. She beat on her face so much in her distress that she knocked her front teeth out. She spent decades in this situation. In 1902, Dr. Zeller became superintendent of the Peoria State Hospital. And one of his mandates, he believed very strongly in this, he said that there was no one that could not be helped. He firmly believed this. So how do you prove that? How do you prove that no one is beyond help? Mm -hmm. We round to the almshouses and the poorhouses of the state and you cherry pick the worst, most abused, most hellacious cases. And that's exactly what he did. He came to the Adams County almshouse and he found Rhoda. At that point in time, she had calmed down enough to be moved from her Utica crib to a box bed, but she still wouldn't tolerate clothes on her. She was, her box bed was covered with a simple sheet of canvas. That's all that was between her and the outside world. So he took one look at Rhoda and he said, this patient is coming with me. And the, the superintendent of the almshouse didn't want to let Rhoda go because he figured the almshouse was going to be blamed for her condition. Uh -huh. Go figure. And Dr. Zeller said, either this patient comes with me or I shut your institution down effective immediately. September 26th. 1904, the train between Adams County, Quincy, Illinois, and Bartonville was very late getting in. There was a terrible storm that night, and there was a washout on the track. Mm -hmm. So train getting there was, it didn't get there until about one o'clock in the morning. So the nurses and the attendants got the call that the train had finally arrived. The patient Patients, about 60 of them from Adams County, were being transported on boxcars. So the nurses and the attendants went onto the boxcars and escorted the patients out. And they were standing on the, the platform there. And one of the attendants went back into the boxcar to make sure no one had left, been left behind. And they saw this great big wicker laundry basket at one end of the boxcar. And this was unusual because usually the patients arrived with just the clothes on their backs. Uh -huh. so saw this laundry basket and they were like, oh, okay, I guess this is patient's belongings. I guess this gets taken off the train too. So they had one attendant on each side of this big laundry basket. And they hump it off the boxcar and they set it down on the platform. And all of a sudden the lid of the, the, the laundry basket lifts and the clothes part and there sits Rhoda. Her hips had atrophied so much that she could not sit in a chair for any length of time. So she was being transported in this laundry basket along with the sheets. That night, for the first time in 44 years, Rhoda Derry slept in a bed with clean white sheets. Wow. The nurses absolutely waited on her hand and foot from then on. They knew her excruciating history. They made sure she never wanted for anything. She could no longer see. 
but they made sure that she experienced the hilltop in any way that was left to her. They let her sit out in the garden and feel the sun on her face and smell the flowers whose colors she could no longer see. They let her listen to the bird song. They took her to dances so she could enjoy the music. So she uh, was with us for about two years. She probably developed tuberculosis in the almshouse, but in oh. the summer of 1906, her case became full-blown. So she was transferred from her cottage to Dining Hall A, which had also always also been pressed into service as a tuberculosis care ward. And that is where she died, October 9th, 1906, the day before she would have turned 72. Wow. She survived all that time. So Rhoda Derry is one of our most beloved spirits on the hilltop. The book 44 Years in Darkness is her story and her history and her hauntings. <laughs> so yeah, she, she can be felt anywhere on the hilltop and especially at her grave. She is buried with the other sleeping children on the, on the hilltop. Dr. Zeller and Sophie never had children of their own. So they considered the patients, they talked of them as our children and everyone buried in the cemetery, those were our sleeping children. And Rhoda was one of their favorites. And she still is. <laughs> so what does she feel like? Or, or, or have you seen her or what? Or how's that work? I have not been fortunate enough to see her. She has interacted with me, even though I have not known it. <laughs> I have, I have been... I've stood at her grave site with a psychic medium and she's this, the medium has told me that Rhoda has come up and given me a hug because I told her something about her story <laughs> and um, she, she was very excited about it. She came up and gave me a hug. Um, Rhoda was uh, in life when she was a teenager, she picked up the habit of chewing tobacco and she was, to if you came to her cottage share her um, cabin she would tell your fortune in exchange for a trough of tobacco and she continued that habit in the asylum so mm -hmm. if she if she knew that you had tobacco in your pocket she would crab across the floor she couldn't walk but she she could uh, use her hands to push herself around and um she would tug on your pants leg and beg for some trough. So if you are anywhere on that hilltop, but especially at her gravesite, and you feel a tugging on your pants leg and you smell chewing tobacco, that's Rhoda trying to get your attention. I have smelled chewing tobacco. I've never felt the tugging on the pants leg, but I have smelled chewing tobacco, especially after I tell Rhoda's story. And I was with a a couple of or a, a team of investigators it was three teams together that were doing a two-day investigation of the pollock hospital mm -hmm. and i told rhoda's story several times that evening because i was able to be with them both in both evenings of the investigation and one of the investigators was a psychic medium and she felt so bad about this story because i told her this is how rhoda's spirit manifests is a tugging on the pants leg and she i told her that friday night and saturday night they came saturday all day she was just doing about this she was like this is so unfair this is here's a woman who suffered so much in her life and in the afterlife she's still re relegated to crawling around on the floor mm -hmm. so she's still doing about this 
when the investigative teams came back to the Pollock Hospital Saturday evening. So she was in the hallway, Lisa was in the hallway, and she became aware of Rhoda sitting on the floor next to her. And Rhoda looked up, made eye contact with the psychic medium, made sure that the medium could see her, and then got to her knees and then stood and gestured to herself like, see, it's the afterlife. I can stand. But she does that, the, the tugging on your pants leg, because she knows it's expected of her. Sure. But she wanted to show, because Lisa had spent so much time agonizing over this, she wanted to show her that, yes, I am whole in the afterlife. I can stand. It's okay. You don't need to worry about me so much. That is really cool. That's really cool. You know, I can see why you say, um, like you said in the beginning of the interview, that that these people really enjoyed their time there. Because when you think about their lives, even outside the institutions, I mean, the families were struggling with them. Yeah. And then the other places that they got sent to prior to this, or even their home life even, I mean, being able to come, come to this place and have this freedom was just huge. Oh, exactly, yes. Um, and the Peoria State Hospital, I mentioned Jacksonville before, the Peoria State Hospital was the first state hospital that was built with no limits. People could stay with us for as long as they needed to. And there were people that stayed with us for 50 years, for their entire lives. They spent, they came to us and they spent the rest of their lives with us. And not only Rhoda for those two years, but people lived there for 50 years and more. So yeah, we were a safe place and we, we let people stay as long as they needed to. And we also had the highest rate of reintegration into society of any state hospital in the state of Illinois. And I think in the entire United States. And that was because when someone was released, Dr. Zeller would send nurses to the person's home to make sure that it wasn't their home life that was causing the problem. They had follow-up care too, which was again, unheard of in the wow. mental health. He was so far ahead of the times. Oh, he was, it was amazing. That's incredible. You know, because that, I mean, that if you look at what goes on with people that are in the hospital and have had operations and stuff, that's what they do now, especially with the elderly. You know, they, they send, uh, you know, nurses in and out of the house to make sure things are going good and to help them out and stuff and whatnot. So, I mean, he was just so far ahead of the curve compared to all the other doctors at that time. Oh, yes. He was very, also very interested in the welfare of women. He hired a lot of women to work at the asylum and he would go around to high schools and lecture. And this was in 1902 and the first decade of the 19th or the uh, 20th century. And women weren't even allowed to vote at that point. And he would go to high school classrooms and he would tell the young women there, if you want to be a nurse, come to my institution. I will train you. It had the finest nursing college for 36 years. Hmm. The finest nursing college program in the country for 36 years while he was in charge. He said, do you want to be a doctor? go ahead. He encouraged women to go on, follow up their nursing degrees with doctorates, with becoming doctors in their own right. 
He said, you want to be a lawyer? Go out and do that. You can do anything you want to. Mm -hmm. He encouraged this. That is really yeah. cool. Really cool. Very what do you think is one of the most active areas of the hospital? Oh, um, well, I am told that the Zeller Hospital was extremely active, but it was torn down before I was a part of that. Uh -huh. I would say the Pollock Hospital is extremely active. Um, unfortunately, that's not a building we can get into anymore with any degree of ease. Um, there is a, one of the men's ward cottages is, uh, one of the men's cottages is being turned into a museum. And that is also very active. The neat thing about Fractured Spirits is that people share their experiences with me. Right. When I typed the end, people didn't stop having experiences. <laughs> so, and I didn't stop having experiences. So that's how Fractured Souls came to be, is right. I collected a book's worth more of stories. And I'm still finding stories. So I'm going to be putting out a third book eventually. <laughs> so in addition to all the other books. That sure, I'm sure, sure. There's just, there's got to be so many stories there. I mean, you know, over the years with all the patients that went through there and, and the nurses, staff and the doctors and all that. Have you run into anything negative at all? Uh, yes, but it's just the person's personality in life. Uh-huh. And I, I mentioned Jesse Spar and Bonham. And uh, uh -huh. so, yeah. It was just a, a, a violent personality in life that has continued to be violent in death. And there is a spirit in the basement of the Pollock Hospital that is, he's gotten a reputation as kind of a bully because he will, he will like put a thumb in the back of investigators' necks and makes, make their neck ache. Okay. But really, he's just wanting, he's, we think that he was one of the, um, one of the people that had the job of caretaking and um, making sure the building was, the heating system was running properly because he's found most often in the electrical room. Okay. And he's, he's just very gruff. The mediums that I have talked to have said, he's not really violent. He's just gruff. He wants to be left alone. He oh. doesn't understand why people come and invade his territory. So he just wants people to leave. <laughs> So yeah, it's nothing. It's nothing violent. It's just he wants to be left, and he makes his wishes known. That's the that's the worst. He, that spirit and heavy boots are the worst we've encountered. Quite honestly. Okay. okay. Everyone else. Do you think the atmosphere? I mean, how, how would you say for investigators going in there with the atmosphere? I mean, there's always a, like you talked about that the, the the one the the one time a day you know where you you felt real edgy. But other than that, what, what do you think the overall atmosphere is for investigators when, when they go in? It's really intriguing because we do have access to a couple of the asylum buildings. Most oh. of them repurposed, the ones that are still standing, but we do have access to some of them. And if you go into the Pollock Hospital, this is the tuberculosis ward. Sure. You can feel, some people feel a, a great heaviness in their chest. If you go into the men's ward and the women's ward, you can feel a sense of oppressive sadness. The wards were divided into recovery wards and death wards. Okay. And they, the patients were segregated. They were kept apart because 
the, the nurses knew that some of these patients just didn't have the chance. They were there until they died and they, they didn't have very long. They were in the end stages of tuberculosis. So um, there are death wards. And if you are in those death wards on the men's or women's sides, you can feel a sense of heaviness and oppression. And we have heard deep breaths. <clears throat> that we've heard that. I've heard that. So the the atmosphere in the Pollock Hospital can be very oppressive. Just because there was so much death there. Um, it started in, it, it was built in 1950, closed along with the rest of the hospital in 1973. So in that period of 23 years, there was an average of three to five deaths a week in that building. So the atmosphere there can be very heavy. Now in the cottage, in the men's cottage that the museum is being set up in, the atmosphere is entirely different. Okay. The men's cottage was where there, there are dormitories, big dorm rooms on each side. And in the middle is the dining room and the recreation room. This is where the men gathered after they were done with their work for the day. And it's where they socialized. And you can feel that it's a much lighter atmosphere in the cottage than it is in the Pollock Hospital. So... The Pollock Hospital is dear to my heart for many, many reasons, but the the atmosphere in the cottage is much lighter, and there's a really good reason for that. Is there any power in there still? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's uh, they, they had Scott Power. Uh, doesn't have heat. <laughs> Those are big buildings, and it takes a lot to heat them, but they do have electricity power running through them. I was wondering, are you guys going through in the in pitch black, or are you going through with the power on? Uh, well, the tours go through with the lights on, and then we do go lights out. Okay, okay. Yeah, curious about that. That's a big yeah. hospital we wandered around in. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think is the best thing about investigating there? Mm. Oh boy, all the different experiences people can have if they if they leave themselves open if they come in with an open mind. Because like I said, you might have this theory that people were abused there and it's just not the case at the Peoria State Hospital. And if you go in with the idea of these are people just like me and you go in with that attitude of, I'm gonna see what happens. I'm gonna do the best communication I can and see what happens. you're going to get results. You're going to have people communicating back with you. And it's a wonderful thing. That is a wonderful thing. Here's something I always ask people. Um, part of my business journalism thing is you're standing on a, you're standing on the street, in Las Vegas, and you're standing <laughs> there and, uh, you know, with this experience that, for, you know, at the state hospital, and there's a couple other people that are that, that, that hunt in, haunted state hospitals in other States. How do you, get people to come to the one you you have oh i tell them what a wonderful place it was when it was around i tell them that's the reason it's so haunted is because people got the most excellent care there that they possibly could they got world-class mental health care at that institution 
we had people come from literally all over the world. One of our patients was a, um, a member of English nobility. She was the last surviving descendant of Sir Fran Francis Drake. Wow. When she was having mental issues in the early 20th century, her family searched the world over for the best to put her in and they found it right here in central so they had her committed to the peoria state hospital and mm -hmm. every month the hospital would receive air package for her upkeep that included a pound of silver just to keep her comfortable and get her whatever she needed and this woman when she realized that she was in the end stages of her life she wrote to her family and she said, you know, I understand that I that my body should be shipped back to England and I should be buried in ancestral ground and whatnot. But this is my family now. I would prefer to be buried here when I pass. And she is. Her name is Emily Belcher. And she is in Cemetery 3-4. And you can visit her grave today. And she she is with us because she chooses to be. Like I said, it's probably the best place that they were treated right. Yeah, yeah. You know, compared to what and, their life was like on the outside. Yeah, yeah. Especially compared to the outside. Yeah. Right, right, um, right. A cemetery tour that was going on, and someone had a recorder going through the cemetery tour, and they asked the the, the lead historian who's been studying this place since she was a child. Um, they asked her, "Why is this place so haunted?" Why is it so active? And she started giving the whole thing about the good treatment the patients got and how they they were treated so well. And, and they, they're here because this is the place where they felt safe and comforted. And even before she started all that, on the recorder, you hear a young girl's voice say, they're just so nice here. Oh. Wow. Yeah. That is neat. That is really cool. Really, really, really cool. Yeah. There are many, many reasons for the place to be so incredibly haunted. And it's like a perfect storm of things that will cause a place to be haunted. There's running water right next to the Illinois River. There are ravines that crisscross the hilltop, and those have running water in, in them sometimes. There's a lot of limestone in the area. Um, the Pollock Hospital itself is the basement is built over three feet of a natural spring. Mm -hmm. So it is a very active place uh, used for cold storage of bodies of people that had passed away that had uh, before they were put on the train to be taken back to their families, to their, their family cemeteries. They were stored in the basement wrapped in sheets. And um, only about a, a quarter to a third of the people that died on the hilltop are buried there. There are 4,132 graves. Wow. So yeah, but so most of the people got sent home to their families. Um, there's also the fact that when the asylum closed in 1973, the state of Illinois just locked the doors and walked away. Everything was left just as it was. The city of Bartonville tried to repurpose a lot of the buildings and some of them they did. But the hospitals, of course, really couldn't be repurposed. And this, this cottages that I've been mentioning this whole time, you think quaint little cottage, but they're the size of McMansions right. to have dozens of patients. So they were really too big for 
private use and they weren't really suited to industrial use. So a lot of the cottages, they, they were left as they were. Pianos stood in day rooms unplayed. There were dishes in the cabinets. There were there were sheets on the beds. Mm-hmm. Everything was there. And then the the wrecking ball just came in and knocked everything down and all the rubble fell into the basement and everything else that was left on top, they just scooped it up by the dump truck full and dumped it in the ravines. Wow. That was 50 years ago. And there are still places in those ravines where you can't take two steps without stepping on broken crockery. All the stuff is still down there. So that's also a very powerful attractant for the sure. spirit. Your stuff is still there. Sure, sure, sure. What's next for you? Oh, boy. Well, I just came out with a book called Days of the Dead, A Year of True Ghost Stories. And I also have a calendar to go along with it. I have a 2022 Days of the Dead calendar, if people are interested. Contact me at sylviaschultz.wordpress.com. There's a contact me on the button uh, button on the site. Hit me up. We'll we'll get the calendar. So the next book I'm working on is a book that will be the first in a series. It's called Grave Deeds and Dead Plots. And it is a collection, collections of stories of violent crimes, true crimes with hauntings attached. Cool. Very, 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 very cool. Very cool. I want to thank you for coming on. This was fantastic. Charlotte, thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I would love to get you back on again to talk about some more of these stories. You know, like like your your, your day in the life of a haunting book you got coming out. That would be really cool, haunting for every day. You know, talk yep. about different hauntings in, in that in the area where you're at in the state of Illinois. I would love to do that. Excellent. Just whenever you'd like me to be on, I will. I am at your service. Sounds good. All right, you have a good evening. And sure. thank you again. Have a great evening. All right. Have a good one. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, guys. That was a blast. She, she, she was terrific, and I really enjoyed that. I hope you guys do, too. I learned a lot about the effect. I want to get to Illinois now and check that place out. That's what I think, you know? Anyway, um, if you like the video, please, 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 uh, and you, ha- you haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe to our videos. We're looking, you know, the more subscribers, the merrier. Otherwise, if you liked it, share it with five people. If you hated the video, share it with five of your enemies. We're equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. And again, if, if you want to see some of our archives and you can't find our YouTube page, go ahead over to our website at www.californiahauntsradio.com. And you'll find this video on the front page of that. And you can click on that and it'll take you over to our YouTube page where you can see all of our shows that we've done for the past year and a half, two years. Also, I'm starting to catalog our blog talk shows. And that's going to take me a while because that goes back almost 15 years. So those are going to be showing up too for you guys to take a look at. Remember to subscribe uh, subscribe to our YouTube page if you get the chance. Also, you see that uh, ticker tape thing at the bottom of the page. Well, California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team is a nonprofit, so everything you see here for the radio show, between the mics, the computers, the cameras, lights, camera action, all comes out of my pocket, including the uh, equipment for the paranormal team when we go out and help people. And so uh, sometimes I, I could use a little help to uh, pay for the internet and everything, so if you can find it in your heart to do that, that would be great, and that would be at paypal.me at California Haunts. 
Or if you have trouble with PayPal or you're not happy with PayPal, you can do a Venmo. And all you have to do is type in, you know, get the Venmo, type in California Hots. You can do it from there. But I'd really appreciate it because I want to keep bringing really cool guests on, like, like Sylvia, back on the air. And I want to keep the show going. I mean, that's what it's all about is to learn, be informative and learn, uh, you know, about the different haunted places and the different techniques people have for ghost hunting and the stories and all that good stuff. Tomorrow now, Sasha Graham is going to be with us, and we're going to learn all about tarot, and I think she might do some readings for us. So we'll see how that works out tomorrow, so you guys be ready for that. But Sasha Graham will be with us at the usual time at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. And uh, that's it for tonight, and I'm going to let you guys go, and I'm going to give you a tease over to Sylvia's website, and you can take a look at the book again, and all her books are available at Amazon. There's a lot of them, and uh, I think you'll enjoy it. So here we go. I'm going to tease over to Sylvia. So the website is Sylvia Schultz at WordPress.com. And remember to get that calendar, too. We'll plug the calendar. And there it is, Fractured Spirits. And she does have a second uh, book connected to this that you can get as well. And, of course, they're at Amazon.com. Again, I want to thank all of you for coming tonight. I enjoy this immensely, and I love bringing these shows to you guys and finding the guests. And we're definitely going to get Sylvia back on to talk some more. And maybe, maybe if we go to Illinois, if the team, after COVID's done and all that, all this stuff settles down, maybe if we we take a trip to Illinois, we'll go live from that from Peoria State Hospital. How's that sound? We'll do a live. Anyway, I want to thank everybody, and uh, like I said, if you find it in your heart to donate, that would be great. PayPal.me at California Haunts, or Venmo, just type in California Haunts. I will see you guys tomorrow. Have a great evening.